I don't know. What else can I say? <laughs> okay, we're good. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So um, I, I'm going to have you introduce yourself. And um, the other thing that I like to do is have my guests pick out a song to play to introduce them. Or, you know, it could be literally anything um, that you would like to, you know, either set the mood or uh, just something, anything you like. Because it's one thing just to tell you like offhand the names of yeah. various Alice songs. It's another to be like, this will introduce me. Is it really representative <laughs> or is there a lyric that like involves, I don't know, dismembering peeps? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you dismember the people first and hand them out afterwards or? I'm not really sure what the order <laughs> is, but there's definitely, that was the first one that uh, came to mind. <laughs> and I was thinking, you know... It's an interesting song, but I'd rather not be introduced with that. <laughs> I'll well, send it to you too, just in case you're interested. <laughs> yeah, I think this will involve a lot of fun um, musical research for me. This is a topic that I've been interested in for a really long time, just from when I was a very little girl. I've loved Alice in Wonderland, and when I was a little bit older little girl, uh, my grandfather introduced me to um, Martin Gardner, and then I, you know, moved up to the annotated Alice, and I remember even memorizing Jabberwocky for <laughs> like a high school class <laughs> we had to memorize a bit of poetry and you know I was 14 years old and I was like well I'm gonna memorize Jabberwocky which I can still recite not that I will subject you to that um that's impressive <laughs> so it's it, me and Alice go back many 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 years uh, I've even gone to Oxford and yeah I have uh, prince of Alice and um, the White Rabbit on my refrigerator. And did you so, go in the Alice shop? I did go in the Alice shop. I got Alice stationery and I got um, little Alice book plates. One of which is in the front piece of my annotated Alice, which I kept out so that I could, um, you know, reread it <laughs> in <laughs> advance. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'm raring to go on this but um, would you like to introduce yourself to the Certainly. podcast podcast people uh so i am amanda kennel i am a, an assistant professor at the university of notre dame in the department of east asian languages and cultures and i'm the author of alice in japanese wonderlands this is a book that examines as many of the many, many, many Japanese adaptations of Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland novels as I could cram into it. 
And it's really part of a large, uh, larger project of my research, which is to understand how media work today. So I guess just to start at the very beginning, for listeners who may only know Alice in Wonderland as the Disney movie, um, do you want to give a little background maybe to who Lewis Carroll is and um, what these, these books are? I don't sure. know if that's a good place to start. It's as good a place as any, although I'm getting the sense you may actually be able to contribute more to that than <laughs> I can. I can jump in. I can jump in if necessary. Uh, well, so it all sort of goes back, according to the lore, uh, to a sunny day around about uh, the middle of the 19th century when uh, English Reverend uh, Charles Lutwidge Dodson, who was actually really a don at Oxford, but at the time you had to be a reverend to be one, so he became one. Uh, but he took his boss's daughters on a little boat trip down the local river and told them a story about a girl named Alice and how she wandered into a crazy world called Wonderland, met some fascinating characters, including a mad hatter, a white rabbit that was very concerned with timekeeping, and of course, the famous Queen of Hearts. And then she returned to her everyday world. Um, and this story was well-received by the girls. So Dodson wrote it up and published it as Alice's Adventures in Wonderland using the pen name of Lewis Carroll, and then proceeded to uh, adapt it several more times into the sequel Through the Looking Glass and What Alice Found There and various other works, as it became a smash hit that has been popular ever since. Yeah, it's... It is a just a book that I've loved forever, um, and yeah, it's been adapted to like stage and movies and all yeah, all sorts of different different media. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so when did it first go to Japan? 1899. It managed exactly one year in the 19th century. <laughs> <laughs> and. This is something that I'm really curious about, as, especially as I was rereading. There's so much wordplay um, of the like English language, you know, where in the first, you know, Alice in Wonderland, there's a scene where Alice, she's drenched, just drenched from swimming in this pool of tears. And there's all these little creatures who are also very wet and they sort of wash up on shore. And the, there's a little mouse, and he proceeds to dry them off by telling them the driest tale he knows, which is like some, you know, a little bit of just British history that's, um, you know, just very boring and dry in, in that sense. And I was curious, you know, how, how do you translate something like that into Japanese? Well, to be honest, the answer is you don't. <laughs> that first 1899 translation is actually kind of an oddity. Uh, it was not a translation of Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, in fact. For no reason I've been able to turn up yet, or anybody else that I know of, they started with Through the Looking Glass and What Alice Found There. Oh, interesting. Mm. Um, but as you know, the plot of uh, Through the Looking Glass basically involves Alice acting as though she's a chess piece on a chessboard. That right. is, in fact, the world of, you know, looking glass land. Yeah, she's a little pawn, and then every chapter is another square on the chessboard. Mm -hmm. And as she goes through these different 
squares, um, she progresses to the very end where she becomes a queen as, you know, a pawn that makes it to the end of the chessboard can be queened. Exactly. Well, the translator, um, Hasegawa Tenke, chess wasn't known in Japan that time. I mean, let me rephrase. There were probably a few adults who knew it, but the kids he was translating for had no idea what that was, let alone the whole pawn to queen thing. So what he does is he replaces uh, chess with a Japanese game, Go. Oh, so it's he localized it. Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and that works really well up to a point. Because at a certain point, you really need to know that the pawn that is Alice is becoming a queen. Yeah. <laughs> and Go doesn't have anything where pawns become queens. So at that point in the story, a traditional Japanese demon, an oni, I believe, uh, pops up, chases Alice around, and that's sort of the uh, impetus for her waking up from a dream. Wow. And there the okay. story ends. Yeah, it, it's cut short um, quite a bit, but it's a really interesting kind of merger of the different cultures. And it's a neat way to see how uh, knowledge about Britain and British culture is entering Japan, but... That doesn't mean it's all there all at once. Some of it is there, but some of it is not yet. You know, these books are so specific to mid-19th century Britain in so many ways, just jokes about nursery rhymes that, I mean, we don't even know anymore, except through the parodies of um, Alice and Through the Looking Glass. You know, you were old Father William, or how how doth the little crocodile, you know, like these nursery rhymes and, and, and poems that we would have no idea. Um, just things like that, uh, or just the, the social customs. Um, you know, there's a whole sequence about like the lobster quadrille and you know, what, <laughs> like what child would even know what a, a formal dance, like a, you know, like a quadrille mm. was supposed to be that, that is getting mocked. So, I mean, we can still enjoy it, but yeah, it is, um, pretty far removed from the uh, customs of of when and, and where the book is from. And yet there are things that are uh, would have uh, sort of chimed with Japanese readers in 1899 and would work for younger readers today. Um, just the idea of going to school, for example, which comes up uh, in Alice and was uh, increasingly a thing in Japan at the time. There was a huge act um, for basically the reform and expansion of education in Japan around the same time. Um, and of course, kids today still go to school. <laughs> um, so you well, you do see some things that, you know, still resonate quite neatly. Other things resonate in new ways. The Victorian time period in Japanese culture today can often be used as a sort of stand-in for thinking about Japan's role in Asia and in the world after World War II, after the end of the Japanese Empire, um, or for thinking about what might have uh, gone wrong with uh, Japan's colonial enterprises in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Yeah, it can be. There are parallels between Japan and the UK. I know that, you know, you can Google them and, you know, Reddit threads or whatever will come up. It's, um, yeah, this is definitely something that's in the the cultural ether. I wonder how, you know, how is Alice herself, because she is a very cheeky um, little girl, you know, very, she's not necessarily disrespectful, but 
she kind of verges on it a bit. Like how, how was she received as a, a character? She seems to have been pretty popular um, from, I want to say from the start, you know, it, it, there have been so many translation, Japanese translations of Alice at this point. There's over, I think, 500 of them now. Wow. So, you know, the, the initial years, it took some time uh, to get to the point we're at now, which is that we have multiple new translations every year, basically. Yeah. Well, that does seem like something that would benefit from kind of constant translation and updating into contemporary language. Mm. Yeah. And the initial translations, certainly, they do less and less of the localization. And some of the early localization did maybe make Alice seem a little more polite. (laughs) (laughs) I can believe that. But even so, she was very independent. You know, in that very first uh, translation of Looking Glass, she travels on a train by herself as a young girl. Yeah, yeah. I don't think that was really a thing for young Japanese girls in 1899. Not the, you know, certainly not the uh, sort of upper class ones. Right. Traveling on the train and then just sort of making conversation with the strangers around her. Oh, yeah. Just wandering off and doing what she wanted. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. She's good at that. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, even today, it's um, we don't really let kids roam free. And I have a little niece who is... uh, seven she's not quite seven and a half but which is how old alice is in the in through the looking class but um yeah i i can't imagine her putting her on the like the subway or something by herself and <laughs> we just don't do that today weirdly enough in japan they do um it's you know very safe there and kids ride the subway on their own on a fairly regular basis I guess we've the, there's a little bit more Alice in uh, Tokyo than in uh, <laughs> than over here, I guess. Um, so, what about the illustrations from you know those John Tenniel illustrations are so iconic. Did those make it over, or did they do all new artwork? Or the initial translation? Um, they, uh, I mean, yes, they made it over in the sense that. Uh, Tenniel's illustrations seem to have been copied and like literally copied off of the pages. <laughs> um, as far as I've been able to ascertain, Alice's, or I should say, uh, Dodson's copyright over Alice has never been paid any particular attention in Japan. And I say that the um, copyright, I, f- I forget the year it expires in Japan, but it's very early, like 19 knots. Um, so it was only the first five or ten translations that would have really been affected, but they don't seem to have paid any attention at all. (laughs) Well, it's probably not much they could do about it in those days. Mm -hmm. Yeah, global copyright, yeah. Yeah, there's been some interesting work coming out lately. I was just reading about the the copyright wars vis-a-vis vinyl records and recordings. There was actually a lot of change in the law in Japan because of that. Oh, really? What was Mm. the... What's the war? Uh, there was a gentleman by the name of Plage, is how I think it's pronounced, P-L-A-G-E. Um, and he basically set himself up as a local representative of all sorts of European, uh, how to put it, uh, composers and you know various people who had produced music. So he goes to Japan and he starts asking all these people for royalties. And initially the responses are sort of confused. 
but what had happened was that the United Nations had passed a law about uh, copyright, and he was in the right, so he took people to court and got a lot of money. Oh, goodness. Uh, yep. It took a bit of uh, time, uh, but for a while there, apparently, there was just almost a stoppage of musical production in Japan as people tried to figure out what was going on. What this new copyright thing was. Wow, mm -hmm. yeah. So, okay, so there's this early translation of Alice in 1899 um, that's fairly successful, and then more follow, and then, yeah, so how how does Alice become this big figure then? Um, because I, so I was just in uh, Japan back in December, um, and I went with my friend to Tokyo Disney, and, you know, Alice is... A huge character in at least like at at the Tokyo Disney parks I mean there were there are you see character icons of like the white rabbit and like the little oysters from the um walrus and the carpenter section and and things that you would just never like she's not that present at the American parks like it's and you know as someone that loves Alice I was thrilled but yeah how how like how does that happen <laughs> Um, in this case, I think it's a situation of the tail wagging the dog. Alice was quite popular in Japan and had become quite popular in Japan before the Disney movie made its way to Japan. That's not to say that um, the Disney movie didn't further popularize it in some ways. Sure. But I've noticed that uh, Disney seems quite astute um, in that they will see what trends are going on in Japan, in particular as regards Alice, and then they will hop onto them. So, for example, uh, it became kind of a thing to depict Alice in silhouette in Japan, just, you know, as a shadow rather than um, a fully fleshed out character with different colors and, you know, details in her clothing and face and all that. And lo and behold, I would see Disney notebooks with Alice in silhouette and Disney tape with Alice, you know, an Alice in silhouette design on it. Like the little, like the tape for your, um, that you put on a letter, like that kind of tape? Uh, there's the stuff called washi tape. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like decorative tape. Yeah. Um, most of the ones I've seen with Alice have been sort of, um, I think aimed at younger audiences. So they tend to be a little shinier in their material. I feel like they're going on binders, you know, school binders <laughs> and things like that. That's very cute. <laughs> oh, they are. I have a few. <laughs> <laughs> but if you look at, say, America... Disney has its princesses line, and Alice is not one of them. 
in Japan, uh, it doesn't really go by the name of the princess's line, but you will find a similar setup where Disney will put out a new piece of merchandise with a certain, you know, layout, a character, a certain color scheme, and they will do it with a different, say, color uh, for each princess or each character of a group that is equivalent to the American Disney princesses. But the Japanese version includes Alice. Oh, that is interesting. Yeah. Um, so, for example, that uh, notebook that I mentioned where Alice is in silhouette, that was part of a series. And it put all of the Disney princesses, or I say all of the princesses, it had... Um, who were the other princesses? I'm guessing no. Belle, because I, I know Beauty and the Beast is quite popular. Mm. Um, probably Cinderella, Snow mm -hmm. White. Not sure about Snow White. It had Sleeping uh, Beauty. Jasmine? Maybe. And it yeah. had Tinkerbell, too, who is the one kind of non-princess, uh, in addition to Alice, who gets really put in that group. Yeah. But the, the idea of the silhouette seems to have come directly from how they were already producing Alice merchandise. And that seems to have itself been inspired by pre-existing Japanese merchandise with Alice and Silhouette. That is interesting. Yeah, I, the yeah the influence of the culture on the Disney. That, I mean that that is how Disney operates when they operate best. I think. And we see sort of a heightened example of that in uh, video games. Actually, uh, are you familiar with Kingdom Hearts? Uh, yeah, yeah, Kingdom Hearts. Yes, yeah. And there's one actually. My friend was playing it. It's a cell phone game. Twisted Wonderland? Um, Twisted Wonderland, yeah. So the interesting thing about Twisted... Well, there's a lot of interesting things about Twisted Wonderland, in my opinion. Um, but the character designs, and I think the basic sort of setting and the idea of the story, came from an artist named Yana Tobosel. So for people that don't know Kingdom Hearts... Or not Kingdom Hearts. Uh, Twisted Wonderland, my understanding, just from hearing her talk about it, it's like set at like a Hogwarts-style like boarding school... There's like different houses and one of them is like the, are they like villain houses or they're different? Have you played it? Oh yeah. Okay. I, <laughs> well then you I, explain I, it. <laughs> no, I think you were doing a fabulous job. It's, okay. um, I think the best uh, description is sort of like a cross between Disney and Harry Potter. Yeah. And they're all like the Bishonen, you know, anime very like pretty boys are the the characters <laughs> yeah it's a boys school so yeah um yeah. i guess technically we should say it's a cross between disney harry potter and a japanese uh genre of game called the dating simulation game <laughs> yes um players play a character whose name is you why you but of course it sounds like you know you yourself and this character is supposedly part of our world, um, but at the very beginning of the game, there's something strange happens. No one's really sure at all. Um, and you just appears in Twisted Wonderland. This is a different world where each of the uh, countries is inspired by a slightly twisted version of the classic Disney films. So, of course, we have a twisted Alice in Wonderland war, uh, land. And you've got uh, Sleeping Beauty, Aladdin, so and so on and so forth. At any rate, you, the character, um, is basically given permission to stay at the school where you first appear. And supposedly, you're you're kind of investigating how you got there and how to get home. You don't really do a lot of investigating. <laughs> But this school uh, is, of, of course, a school of magic, and it has a dorm that roughly aligns with each of the lands and therefore each of the films in question. 
The primary one is um, Hartzlebule, it's called. And this is, of course, the dorm associated with Alice in Wonderland. So all of the characters in each dorm have a theme associated with that uh, twisted film. And you go on having various um, not particularly stressful uh, adventures with them. It's a type of game called a gacha game, where the idea is that um, for each car uh, character, there are various cards that have them in different outfits and have the ability to use different spells and things of that nature. So like Pokemon, you got to catch them all, right? Yeah, it's it's a what like a casual gamer game. My I know my friend just enjoyed playing like on her, you know, phone just um, you know, for a few minutes at a time. It wasn't it's not like a in-depth stressful game, but um yeah, the visuals are very pretty. Um and I I enjoyed hearing her talk about it. Mm. Yeah, so I mean this this stuff is pretty present, I think, in at least in girls culture. Um, I think it crosses into boys as well and adults. That's one of the hallmarks of those early Alice translations. You get them in magazines aimed at uh, sort of general youth audience. You get them in um, magazines that are explicitly aimed at a kind of uh, boy audience, a very, very young child audience, a girl's audience, and an adult English language learner audience. Oh, wow. Yeah, because I was thinking about it and you know, is because, well, my first thought was like, how, how on earth do you translate all of this wordplay? But if you, if you're not really focused on kind of a lot of the, the humor of um, just these like puns and, and, and things of that sort. And I mean, there is still a lot in there to appeal to, you know, readers of, of all different types. I mean, there is like the, the heavy fantasy element and he does paint these scenes that have this, they have such a pull. And I mean, you see them referenced all the time in, you know, in, in things like, you know, math and, and philosophy and, you know, are we, are we all in like the Red King's dream? I mean, just, just things like that, or, or the, just the image of, one of my favorite little bits is just that Alice going into the shop and the item that she wants, she follows it up every different shelf until it reaches the top and then it vanishes. And, you know, something like that, you don't need clever wordplay to understand that, that, that visual and that, just that feeling of, of being in that dreamlike world of, where things just kind of merge and change and yeah yeah so I can see how it would how it would appeal like across a broad variety of of audience it's always struck me that the part about painting the flowers red is just a fabulous commentary on kind of adulthood and the working world (laughs) yeah I'd love to put myself in Alice's position and just go like, oh, what are these crazy people doing painting? Like, don't they know that flowers get their, like, that's not how roses become red. Um, But then really, you know, at work, sometimes you're sitting there and you're looking at a white flower and you're like, oh, we need red. I have white. I have to paint it red. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it was funny, um, you know, because I was thinking, um, I mean, I guess this is goes back to more wordplay, but, you know, 
I love her interaction with Humpty Dumpty. And for me, that's, that's a lot of being adulthood, you know, he's like, because I, I copied the quote where he says, when I use a word, it means just what I choose it to mean, neither more nor less. And I have certainly dealt with people like that like at work. I think I've heard somebody say something pretty much word for word that without intending <laughs> to, to sound quote like Humpty Dumpty, who was just like the most pompous. Um, yeah. Oh God. Yeah. I love that whole interaction, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can see, um, I mean, just as an English, you know, native English speaker, all of that rings, um, very differently, but yeah, the, I can see how the appeal would be there even without Lewis Carroll's turns of phrase. And for all you say that the many translators who have at this point turned their hand to getting Alice into Japanese, they've really done a wonderful job. I know one uh, who told me that it is apparently kind of not the thing to uh, reuse some other translator's wording. Oh, okay. It's kind of a taboo. And the thing about it is that that means that everybody has been trying everything under the sun um, for basically every pun, every bit of wordplay, everything in um, all of the books. And over time, they've come up with some really fascinating ones. I wish I had one like ready right off the bat to use for you. Oh, that's okay. Yeah, well, the next time I put in an order with, uh, you know, Amazon Japan, I'll have to to, to um, add like a copy of Alice in Wonderland in there just to see, mm-hmm. just to see for myself. Uh, the translator who told me that, by the way, is Kusumoto Kimie, and she's uh, the person who translated Alice's Adventures in Wonderland for Kusama Yayoi, the fine artist. I visited her um, uh, Matsumoto when I was in Matsumoto a few years ago. Mm-hmm. I went to the gallery like there because she's oh, from Matsumoto wow. and like saw yeah. her. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty cool. Um, it was like a rainy, you know, mm-hmm. like weekday morning. There was like no one around, but yeah, it was it was great. Oh wow! I wish I had been able to go. I hope I'm hoping to get back to Japan this uh, coming summer, but yeah. I've never been there. Oh yeah, you should go to Matsumoto. I, I, the there's like the big. Um, there's like the historic castle and you can eat lots of soba. It's great. Mm-hmm. Oh, one way or another, I will eat a lot of soba. <laughs> Highly recommended. But um, Kusama Yayoi, um, she's actually identified herself as the modern Alice uh, from at least 1968 on to today. She's um, also called herself the eternal Alice and the living Alice. She has reworked really, uh, how to put it? I mean, obviously, you know her work. So she does polka dot art. She does mirrored art. Well, she she's interested, at least as far as I can tell, just from from her pieces. You know, she she wants to kind of create um, in the viewer or the, the the yeah, the viewer sort of an alternate perception or like an alternate way of looking at things, I think. Mm. She wants to help you get, or she wants to help get you out of the restrictions that your body imposes on you, in a sense. Yeah, yeah, that your senses that you would impose on you. Mm. And a lot of the themes and media that she works with just so happen to be present in Alice. She has, for example, written um, in the first of her memoirs 
um, or autobiographies, I suppose, technically. Um, she wrote about how uh, this one episode when she was very young, she was in a field full of flowers and she actually heard them talking to her. And it was um, obviously incredibly disorienting and confusing and disturbing at the time. But then from my perspective, we're looking back at this from, I believe that book came out in 2001, when she's already been associating herself with Alice for decades. And I can't help thinking of the talking flowers and Alice's adventures in Wonderland. And um, thinking, too, about how she was at that time beginning to develop a series of very large uh, sculptures of flowers, much larger than real life. They tower over the people who go to see them, kind of like you are Alice and you have shrunk down after eating the wrong thing or fanning yourself the wrong way. So you start to see that, in a way, Alice becomes a great lens to re-examine Kusama's oeuvre overall. And Kusama knows that because she's clearly, uh, you know, explicitly invoked Alice time and time again. Yeah. And she's an expert at the personal brand and branding herself. So, yeah, she mm -hmm. would. That makes sense. I hadn't heard that connection before. So that's really cool that mm -hmm. she has that Alice connection. And so is is does Alice also have that same countercultural just is it also a countercultural touchstone because you say 1968 and, you know, when I think 1968 and Alice, I'm thinking the Jefferson airplane and, you know, one pill makes you larger and, like, <laughs> you know, one makes you small and the ones that mother give you don't do anything at all. Does Alice have that same connotation? One pill makes you larger and one pill makes you small. Um, so yes and no. 
Okay. In Kusama's case, absolutely, because Kusama was actually in New York in 1968. <laughs> um, so she, um, 1968 specifically, um, she orchestrated a happening at the Alice in Wonderland statue in Central Park in New York City. What? No way. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Oh, how did I not know this? That's amazing. If you want to learn more, that first autobiography of hers has been translated into English, and she reprints almost all of the text of the um, press release from that happening. It's really um, particularly interesting for me, because if you look at the various happenings that she's doing in, in 1968, and 1960, um, sorry, not 1968, happenings of, in case anybody doesn't know what they are. Oh, yes, please. Yeah, go ahead. Um, there are these participatory artistic events where generally one artist kind of sets it up, orchestrates the whole thing, but they get in, people involved who aren't necessarily identifying themselves as artists. Yeah, there is a famous one um, that, just because I'm also a, a Beatles or was it a teenage Beatles fanatic? So I read like 80 billion books. And um, so Yoko Ono was also <laughs> involved in this. I don't know if she was in the same scene, um, but the, the, she would um, have she people come and like cut off bits of her dress and, and just things like that. Um, so mm-hmm. yeah, it was, yeah, participatory, um, kind of like bringing art, art into the, the real world, I guess, or like art out of the academy and onto the streets. And for Kusama, that's very much bound up um, in the 1960s with the fact that she was female and Asian and she felt that there was, uh, that those two things were part of why her work was not being received as well as it might perhaps be seen as uh, having merited in retrospect. So the thing about happenings, um, for her, hers are very intentionally kind of out there and border pushing. Generally, they involve the various participants showing up. She always had press releases. She always invited the press. Um, And then the participants would disrobe and she would paint polka dots on their nude bodies. And I say that there were variations from place to place. Um, If you look at her other 1968 happenings, they're very political. She performed a gay marriage, um, and that's, I believe, the only happening she did that was indoors, because that was uh, the only way she, I think they thought they could get away with it. Um, she protested capitalism on Wall Street several times, long before Occupy Wall Street. Um, she did various happenings in favor of peace and you know, anti-war activities. And then in the middle of that, she felt it was important to do Alice. And it's, I believe, the only non-political, or at least not overtly political, right. happening she did. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, so then that she definitely was right there with the Jefferson Airplane tip of... Uh, Absolutely. The, <laughs> the countercultural <laughs> Alice, yeah. In wow. fact, the press release, um, uh, I wish I could quote the uh, phrasing for you, but let's just say it is explicitly... Um, invoking that kind of psychedelia, um, the idea of magic mushrooms and growing larger and smaller and all of that. Kusama positions herself, though, as, as I said, the modern Alice. So the original Alice kind of falls into Wonderland and then wakes back up out of it without really having complete control over what she's doing. Yeah, and then um, at the the last bit of both novels, it's it's very explicitly kind of um 
they're they're reassuring to to the any children reading you know where she's comforted or you know she's explaining what happened to an adult and she's safe and and you know happy and at home and yeah it's it's definitely a very a child I don't want to say childish but you know childlike mm-hmm. ending to the story in contrast Kusama, the modern Alice, is completely in control. She opens up the door to Wonderland for everyone uh, who participates in her happenings, effectively. So she controls entry to Wonderland, or in this case, uh, symbolically, the out-of-body experience, the the hippiness, uh, that sort of hippie-style magic mushroom, you know, gaining of the... uh, what do you call it? Opening of the third eye and gaining yes. of perspective, all yeah, of that. Yeah, yeah. And she's saying, come, you know, if you just participate in my happening, I will enable that for you. I am the master. It's taking on a level of control that maybe uh, she didn't feel she was being correctly attributed with by various museums at the time. And that's partially why she did sort of emphasize these happenings because they allowed her to go to the newspapers and get newspaper coverage that put her art or coverage of it in hundreds of newspapers across America and internationally. She wasn't getting that attention from the biggest of the art museums and she felt she should be. Yeah, and then Alice is such a great way. It, it is like this this touchstone figure, like people would know, this cultural figure that people would know. So that that is, she is very smart she is a very smart woman (laughs) Mm. yeah it's like you were talking about um or you alluded to her mental health before where she um kusama quite famously has lived in a sanitarium for a couple decades now of her own volition and the interesting thing about that is that she has actively tied her mental health to her art she says because i am ill I can have this kind of dissociated, out-of-body experience, and I can lead you to it through my art. But as a result, for those of us who try to talk about her art, we're in this interesting position. I know nothing about her mental health, her actual mental health. I know quite a bit about how she has portrayed her mental health in her art. And those are two very different things. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that this is something that, you know, because I deal so much with um, idols, and the, you know, the, the idea that there is this public character that, that is created um, that may or may not have anything in common with the person behind it. Um, so I, I think that, you know, you can look at an, a figure like um, Kusama in kind of, a, not, not in an identical way, but you know there is this this creation of the public persona mm-hmm. that is so interesting and you know you you do want to be careful about drawing assumptions about the actual human being behind it all and yet at the same time the one assumption we can draw is that she is supremely talented and dedicated yes. and as you said really smart about she's, what she's doing yeah yeah that is very smart but the um the countercultural aspects of Alice, that fascinates me um, that this also made it through into Japan um, because just I, I, I've looked a little bit at the popularity of the musical Hair mm. in Japan and sort of the troubles that that musical 
production has like run into um with oh do tell oh well so the, it was mounted in i guess it was 1970 i want to say in tokyo and it was done by this whole cadre of um like like scene stirs and and movers and shakers um out of sort of based around this um Italian restaurant in Roppongi called Chianti. Are you familiar with like the Chianti scene? That specific restaurant? Yeah. Um, afraid not. Okay. <laughs> if you say Chianti scene, I'm like, is that a, re- that's a yeah. restaurant? That, I yeah. assume you mean that and not the uh, beverage. No, no, not the beverage. Um, yeah, so there was this salon, essentially, that um, a lot of you know, lyricists and songwriters and musicians and artists and costumers and theater people and like um, even foreign theater people when they would come to Tokyo, they would go to Chianti because that was where you went. Um, But uh, there was also, you know, marijuana and um, things like that. And so... um, this was, you know, coming after all these, you know, the Tokyo um, student riots and everything. So people were kind of on edge, or the authorities were kind of on edge anyway. Mm. And yeah, they busted like a big part of the cast and associates. And yeah, so the Tokyo, if I'm remembering right, like the Tokyo run went, oh, like that was done, but then they were um, arrested before the Osaka run could happen. And yeah, mm. the that was the end of hair. But you can still find, like, they have, so there's some TV clips and stuff up on YouTube that I've watched. But yeah, so that's so, yeah, just know, like knowing that whole story and just, just that, that the appeal of like the American style, like youth and freedom and the hippie movement, but then transporting that to to, um, Japan is a very different story. Yeah, certainly in Japan it gets complex. Um, on one hand, uh, even today, the Japanese society is uh, much less forgiving of drug use than the U.S. is, if you can imagine that. It is the sort of thing that uh, has ruined careers um, and continues to. Um, and yet at the same time, in the... 60s and 70s, there was an Alice boom in the artistic set 
in Japan. And I say it that way because what we see are a number of different publications in magazines and uh, special books and special issues of journals and such that feature, on one hand, academics uh, like myself, um, but on the other hand, artists, poets, playwrights, um, Betsuyaku Minoru or Betchaku Minoru, as he is sometimes called. He's a hugely influential modernist playwright. Um, and he did, uh, going to get the number wrong, but a couple different Alice plays, uh, short ones, and even wrote some music for them uh, and won an award for that in, I won't say 1968, but that may just be because we were just talking about <laughs> 1968 so much. Uh, but around then. Yeah. Um, later, you see Terayama Shuji, another hugely influential playwright and uh, novelist, um, also writing multiple Alice works. And they're, you know, publishing these in special issues of magazines that are quite widely read. And they're, you know, cheek by jowl with uh, English, uh, articles about the novels by Japanese scholars of English literature and psychoanalysis but also translations of previously published English language scholarship. So it's a very sophisticated uh, period and a period of just mm, great attention on Alice from highly educated and artistically inclined people in Japan. Yeah, and, and I guess just echoing, or not echoing, but concurrent with the similar blossoming of Alice scholarship in English, in the Anglosphere world as well. I think so, though to be perfectly honest with you, I am less uh, familiar with the uh, English language <laughs> uh, scholarship. <laughs> so the timing of it I'm a little unsure about, but yeah. certainly I know there are some key publications from around then as well. Yeah, yeah, because I want to say the very first annotated Alice was like 19... 80 maybe um mm. so that was you know the the this kind of dedicated attention to the books was certainly in the air at the time we can say that yeah yeah because there are there are different um you know fan journals um and and all sorts of things in in english mm. um that go back go back they must all date to the 70s i feel like that was when the real boom of these kind of dedicated fan journals and, and publications really starts that would make sense yeah but i could be wrong like the oz the oz ones as well which i'm also fascinated by but um, i know you've got some earlier ones with um like the science fiction goes back a bit earlier but then star trek set off another boom didn't it Yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the Star Trek phenomenon is, I think, responsible for modern Western fandom. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so, but back to Alice. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, so there's this whole kind of scholarly, artistic, um, academic interest through the 60s and into the 70s. But I'm guessing you know, she was still present in kind of mainstream pop culture too, because the, the 19, the Disney movie was 1950. 
in the 1980s, we see a boom in Alice Munga. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, so there is a bit of a shift in focus from one medium to the next over time in Japan, I think, at least where Alice is concerned. Uh, so when was... so? Were these Alice manga, were they serialized, like the, the novels serialized, or were they original stories, or, or both? Ah, so that's where things get interesting. Yeah, let's dig into it. You actually see um, manga that are retelling the stories of Alice's adventures in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass going back, I want to say, to 1957. Um, so quite early, um, where they're just straight up retelling that story. And you still see some of those published today. But what we really see in the 1980s uh, coming out and then into the 90s and today, it's just fabulous, the variety we get. But um, are things that you might say, you know, someone looked at or the artist looked at what constituted Alice in Wonderland, the characters, the settings, the concepts, the images and motifs. And then they went off and kind of did their own thing. And I say that just because there is such a wide variety. <laughs> Some of them are quite close uh, to the narrative of uh, one of Carol's novels or another. But some of them get pretty uh, further from that. Um, for example... Just to give you one kind of in the middle, there's a manga collective called Clamp, and they did a manga called Miyuki-chan in Wonderland. Uh, now, this was serialized in a magazine mainly consumed by adult men, and um, it's kind of a parody of other manga aimed at adult men. Miyuki-chan is just a normal Japanese high school girl. Um, and in each chapter, she falls into a new type of wonderland. Each of these wonderlands, however, is peopled by very beautiful, very scantily clad ladies <laughs> who are very interested in poor Miyuki-chan, who is not as interested in them. And so effectively what ends up happening is she falls into these wonderlands, ends up running away from a scantily clad lesbian, and then somehow falls back into her world. <laughs> In every chapter. It's not its not the longest series. It's one volume collected. Um, but you can see it's clearly a parody for these readers uh, to help them laugh at themselves and the other media that they're consuming. And at the same time, it definitely is retelling that kind of story of, of just a regular girl who's just, you know, doing her schoolwork and trying to live her life. And then suddenly she's in a very weird place. Yeah. Well, the one that I've been fascinated by for the last, well, since I watched it, was um, Alice in Borderland, which is on mm. Netflix for anyone curious. Um, and it's, they're doing a season three, which I'm very excited about. But yeah, all the characters, the Mad Hatter, the Cheshire Cat, they're all in there. But yeah, it's just very different. Uh, it's a different take, a very different take. Have you watched it? I... Have to admit, I haven't actually gotten around to watching. I've read the I read the manga read the back manga, when okay. it came out, yeah. And so yeah. when it came on Netflix, I thought I should watch this, but I did already read the manga. I know so you already know the story. The priority yeah. list. Yeah. Well, I won't. Mm. I won't give any spoilers. But basically, um, a a young a young man in this case um, falls into a. It's not really a wonderland. It's kind of a dystopia world but um yeah he has to go through 
all of these trials and there's like a, a playing card motif theme rather than the chess of um through the looking glass but yeah it's wonderful highly recommend it mm. It's a fabulous series and one of a sort of subgenre of Alice in Wonderland manga where Alice is a boy. Arisu. Mm. Mm. That's just a fun genre for me. And that's one of the things that I had in mind when you were saying at one point that Alice must be really huge in girls' culture. It is. Yeah. But then we also have all of these boy Alice manga. And, you know, some of them are aimed at girls, but then some of them, it's sort of, you know, I can't help looking at it and thinking, oh, the artist is like, they like Alice and they're trying to make <laughs> a version of it that, uh, you know, maybe a, a teenage boy who's not super secure uh, in himself to, enough to the point of, you know, saying, I like this frilly Alice stuff. Yeah. They're making it for him. Aww. Yeah. Do you have an example of, of that kind of manga? Well, Alice in Borderland. Oh, Alice in Borderland. Okay, I sure. Say, yeah, yeah. I say that one, but um, <laughs> let's see. Uh, so actually, um, that uh, Yana Toboso I mentioned, the artist who did the characters and design for Twisted Wonderland, um, she's also done a series called Black Butler. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. Uh, and so that... I mean, that you can talk about in regards to Alice in a couple ways. You can say the whole series is a uh, very loose adaptation. Um, it's about a young British Earl who is um, undergoes unfortunate events and ends up sort of, um, you know, having his whole life go up in flames around him until he signs a contract with a demon who becomes his butler to basically find uh, the people who... Uh, killed his family and everything uh, and get revenge on them. Uh, but there's also a sort of spin-off, a, a lighter version of Black Butler called Ciel in Wonderland, where Ciel is the young man. Um, as the title suggests, that's not as serious as the uh, main <laughs> series. Um, but that series has a lot of fun with Alice uh, imagery. And there's actually a whole sort of a group of them that I think trace back to an artist called Yuki Kawari, a manga artist. She's done Alice over and over again for a female audience, um, but works like uh, Black Butler aim more at a male audience and sort of expand what she's done, if that makes sense. No, that does make sense. That's interesting. I mean, I know Black Butler. Um, Chewy. <laughs> but sorry. <laughs> He's like the, the uh, third mic on this podcast. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I don't think I've seen Seal in Wonderland, so I'll have to look that up. Oh, it's hilarious. So what about the, you know, that the iconic sort of frilly dress anyone who's got a, a casual interest in japanese pop culture here in america probably um knows about like you know the the lolita fashion and and those those frilly floofy dresses so is that taken from alice as well just that the 
idea of those little petticoat dresses or am I way off way off base here? No, actually. Um, so the Lolita fashion subculture is directly adapted from two things. One being Alice in Wonderland and the other being uh, French Rococo, uh, the art style. So that's explicit. It's uh, written about in, you know, early texts about it. Um, and of course, as you've noticed, uh, there are actually Alice dresses and uh, costumes, you uh, Mad Hatter outfits and so forth uh, that are quite common at uh, stores or aimed at people who want to dress in that style and are handmade uh, by Lolitas who make their own outfits. Yeah, it is a very distinctive look and you know when when you look at the especially like those tenniel tenniel um images of her in her little petticoat i mean you can kind of see definitely the the similarities Mm. and i think that comes in um a bit as well when you start looking at some of those certainly uh there are manga aimed at girls that have that style um but when you think about something like black butler or there's another um among an Alice manga aimed at boys called Pandora Hearts that is similarly set in Victorian Britain. And so they automatically have license, I guess, to have costumes for the characters that go in that direction, even as opposed to historically accurate Victorian costumes, if that makes sense. Um, And that particularly ties into that artist that I mentioned before, Yuki Koori. Um, So I mentioned two manga that were not by her, uh, Black Butler and Pandora Hearts, that were set in Victorian uh, times, albeit slightly fantastical Victorian times, <laughs> and do, I think it's fair to say, exhibit outfits that uh, reflect Lolita style or the influence thereof more so than uh, Victorian costumes. I think it's also fair to say that they are directly influenced by Yuki Ko- an early Yuki Kori series, her really big one. It was originally known as like the Count Kane series. So the thing about that is there aren't counts in England. They have earls. It's France that has the comte or count. Right, because count is a little too close to an English swear word. (laughs) So Kori, or Yuki, I should say, didn't know that when she was first coming up with the idea of the Count Cain series. So in translation, if you buy it in public, you know, today, you'll see that he's properly called an earl. But originally it was supposed to have that alliteration and sound really cool. I don't know, that's always stuck with me because it works very well. <laughs> and Earl Kane just kind of sounds sad. Yeah, it does sound kind of like soggy. Mm. Yeah. Well, Yuki's brand is the sort of um, twisted fairy tale. And she's worked Alice into, or I should say she's adapted Alice at least a dozen times now. She, including twice in uh, the Count Kane series. Oh, interesting. Yeah, because I, I hadn't heard of um, Count Kane. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm going to have to, that's something else I'm going to have to look up. Well, I think the reason for that is, though she, she's she been, I think, quite influential, but the trick of it is, with this whole twisted fairy tale vibe, basically what she does is her stories get very gory, very mm, edgy, lots of murder, uh, zombies, uh, incest. Um, there's one called Angel Sanctuary. If you are really devoted to the Christian conception of angels. You will not like the angels in Angel Sanctuary. You know, it's all that kind of thing. But she draws, you know, skeletons and diseased bodies really beautifully. 
Like she tries to make them look as beautiful as flowers. And in Count Cain, the uh, basic idea of the story is that the titular uh, Count Cain, um, he is a product of incest when his father raped his mother. Um, he hates his father. Uh, and I believe the father is supposed to be dead at the beginning of the series. But Cain has grown up into a sort of odd young man, very beautiful, very interested in poisons. And he kind of wanders around England solving murders just for kicks. Sure. Why not? Mm. Someone has to solve them. <laughs> True. And he is really good at it. <laughs> this actually does sound right up my alley. Oh, then seriously, Yuki Kori's work is <laughs> just go for all of it. She also has a series called Alice in Murderland. Oh, okay. Yeah. The Alice is a little more obvious there, but unlike Count Kane, which is actually set in Victorian Britain, uh, Alice in Murderland is about a Japanese girl in, you know, today's Japan. Is she also Arisu? Aha. Uh-huh. I suppose it's not, I mean, technically it's a spoiler, but it's a spoiler for like the end of volume one. Oh, okay. Um, so Arisu is... Um, kind of like the ghost of a child that was forced to fight to the death some years ago who um, kind of inhabits the protagonist's body. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah, so she can take over the protagonist's body on occasion. And I won't say more than that because then you start getting spoilers for the actual end of the series. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that story is about this. Uh, the protagonist is in a, a wealthy family where everyone is a jabberwock or a kind of monster which is, in fact, possessed by one of these ghosts. And at the beginning of the story, all the kids in the family are told that they have to fight to the death, with the last survivor being the heir to the family. So just happy, fun family vibes for, yep. for that one. <laughs> at their regular monthly <laughs> mad tea party. As you can see, yeah. Yuki Kori's work, um, like if you want to get upset about something, she's got stuff <laughs> Yeah. But if you take uh, in a certain sort of genre of this kind of kind of horrific, gory, very, very gory, generally, um, fantasy styling, uh, she's been quite influential to the extent that Pandora Hearts and uh, Black Butler both owe a, a sort of artistic debt to Count Kane. <laughs>
Yeah, that is. That's interesting. The artistic style and just, I guess, the atmospheric links as well, probably. Yeah, and that's where I start wondering, is is that also part of why they invoke Alice? Why they adapt Alice? Because um, Alice is explicitly adapted into two different of the, uh, how to put it, two of the mysteries that mm. Count Cain solves. So at two different points in this um, series run, she went back to Alice in Wonderland. So Alice definitely, Arisu, is a, a, a touchpoint figure, as well as just sort of this general Wonderland setting. But you mentioned the Mad Tea Party. But so are, are there other of these touchpoints from the book that, that are known or that are sort of widely used? Um, I, I know, I, and I honestly, I haven't seen them. I'll be the the Johnny Depp, you know, where he plays like the Mad Hatter and mm. trying to make this Mad Hatter like the the big character. Um, you know, then there's the from the Disney movies. There's the um, the Queen of Hearts. Although, if if you're going to be pedantic, well, if, if I'm going to be pedantic about it, <laughs> a lot of that character is pulled from uh, the um, the Queen from Through the Looking Glass. The Red Queen, yeah. Yes, from Through the Looking Glass. Um, so, you know, uh, but still, that, that figure is, I don't know, something of a of an icon. <laughs> so are, th- are there similar, or in the Cheshire Cat as well, as a known character? Oh, yeah. One of the beauties of having so many adaptations of Alice in Wonderland is that you can assume someone is familiar. Um, not with every detail uh in japan as in america it's very common to mix together the queen of hearts and the red queen right right the, well the disney version i mean that's that's what disney does is they mm-hmm. they condense and flatten and export you know they they mainstream a lot of this stuff mm-hmm. but yeah to the extent that <laughs> and i hope my friend doesn't mind me telling this but um i had a friend who was a uh, acting branch manager at a public library and she got into a little tiff with a child who wanted a copy of the little mermaid and she gave him the hans christian anderson little mermaid and the kid was very like no uh where's ariel <laughs> like <laughs> so mm. that um yeah as a as a fairy tale pedant or or someone who can be one <laughs> I um yeah I have I have very mixed feelings about Disney but I do accept that most people the, the Disney characters do become kind of uh, touch points. Mm. You know, in fairness to Disney, I'm still not uh, not sure that's where it comes from in Japan or I suppose America since I ne- I don't really research America I think, much. <laughs> I think it I think that that is where it comes from in America because um the the Alice movie it wasn't a success at first but Mm -hmm. it it did become you know almost kind of like the wizard of oz um because it played on tv and then we've all seen it and then it did very well on home video Mm -hmm. so it it becomes kind of the wallpaper of of childhood in in a way you know for Mm -hmm. kids that are just watching things um so even though it was not like a box office success it did kind of seep in 
um, through especially, I think, home video. Oh, I'm not denying it uh, has been, uh, in some cases, someone's primary or first uh, introduction. I just feel like there are other places that also have squished those characters together. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Um. Where was I going? <laughs> oh, the, uh, oh, the other characters you were yes. asking about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Were there other touchstone <clears throat> characters, or yeah? Well, for example, in that Twisted Wonderland game, Alice and, in fact, all of the uh, female—well, I shouldn't say all of the female protagonists, but Alice certainly. Um, if there is a uh, character that's a, a sort of analog of Alice, and it's a big if. Um, but I, I guess you could say maybe the protagonist character, um, the player character, I should say, um, because, you know, you fall into a, a strange world, right? Yeah. But you never see that character. Um, you're not supposed to because the whole idea is that it's you. Um, in fact, the dorm's head is an analog of the Queen of Hearts. And in this world, all of the villains are, in fact, revered as being wise rulers from their respective countries' histories. That game really uh, centers on the Queen of Hearts rather than Alice. Rather than uh, Alice, yeah. It's not Japan, but I happened to be reading a uh, Korean webtoon, Villains Are Destined to Die, a while back. This is one about, um, you know, a, a normal uh, Korean girl who plays a, plays a game where uh, it's the dating simulation type. So you're, you play a character who runs into a situation and she just happens across all of these attractive young men and you try to convince one of them to get in a relationship. The protagonist of the web uh, manga or manhwa is uh, effectively moved into the video game and takes on the role of the villain and now she's desperately trying not to die so you can maybe see her as alice but you most see her as alice when this one male character is introduced who is very much the white rabbit um and that is very odd for this world it's not like there are animal people walking around but he and he alone has a costume he wears to hide his identity where he has white rabbit ears. Oh, interesting. Mm. Um, so you do see these, uh, you know, the, the, ca- the characters you would expect. Yeah. Um, definitely pop up. There is a general cultural familiarity with them. And, you know, some people might not catch the Dormouse uh, if they see him. But the Dormouse is irregular enough or maybe I should say subsidiary enough. Mm. You don't generally see the Dormouse unless you also get say the mad hatter right there and the march hair mm-hmm. yeah um and in fact sometimes the idea of the characters gets played with um there's another <laughs> yuki kori alice in wonderland manga called grand guignol orchestra it's about this traveling orchestra that uses crystal instruments to basically kill zombies <laughs> mm. okay um and early on in the series uh, one character is sort of put forward as a a mad hatter but then as the series progresses another character starts looking more and more like the mad hatter and you ultimately come into this question of which one is the real mad hatter and depending on the answer you get you know who the um basically who is good and who is evil so that rather that's one of her later series by which time i think she had a reputation for adapting alice And people, you know, her dedicated fans kind of knew to look for different signs and symbols. So it kind of becomes a puzzle for readers working out who, which character in Grand Guignol Orchestra is an analog of which 
Alice character. than that because so many of the Alice characters themselves are, are analogs and, and stand-ins for certain types of people. Exactly. Yeah, because there's um, you know, Alice was the middle of Alice Little was the middle of three sisters and the other two sisters are in Alice in Wonderland if you know where to look. <laughs> and they show up in some of the adaptations as well. There's a strand of Japanese adaptation, and I'm sure there are works in other countries as well, where, you know, something like the story of Alice in Wonderland is going on, the narrative of Alice's adventures in Wonderland, I mean. Um, but you'll then also have characters like Alice, Edith, and Lorena Little show up or be referenced in some way. It becomes very uh, almost reflexive or uh, reflective of... Um, a sort of meta understanding of Alice and its role in society. Mm. And what about um, Lewis Carroll, Charles, Charles Dodson himself? He does have an analog in the Alice stories. Um, mm -hmm. There's a knight who shows up in towards the end of, I think it's like the 10th, 10th square. No, 11th square in um through the looking glass there's an, a knight who is widely believed to be sort of a self-insert character mm. um yeah but does is there any awareness of of him as the author at all is you know he has kind of this mythos that's built up in the english anglesfield world but um yeah does he cross over to japan Oh, absolutely. Uh, if you go back to that sort of outpouring of um, publications and uh, artistic works in the 60s and 70s, yeah, some of them were about the novels, um, but some of them were about Carol himself. Some of them um, reprint photographs he took as well. So it's very much uh, 360 degree examination of the phenomena of Alice. Oh, wow. Yeah, I guess I need to go and... Um dig into the 70s, mm -hmm. 70s publications. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, the 
the thing about writing about Lewis Carroll for me yeah. is that a lot of it got bogged down in this question of, um, was he a pedophile? And I, hmm, how, do I want to, how do I want to put this? I don't think it's the most interesting way to view mm-hmm. him as an author or just as a, a person. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think it is hard for us 200 you know, years later to look back at a person and judge their inner thoughts and, and um, yeah, I, I mean, is it, do we really want to diagnose him at 150 years later when there are other things we could be talking about? That's kind of where, where I come down on it. From my perspective, you know, if you want to go there, fine, but no one who's gone there has brought evidence that has really stood the test of time. <laughs> There's also that. There's also that to include like, people that have talked to his because he had you know he called them his child friends um Mm -hmm. and he he loved i mean i think that's he loved little girls um he very strongly disliked little boys um which (laughs) you can tell if you read the books (laughs) um there's a a little baby boy that turns into a pig at one point so Mm. um but yeah yeah i don't think any of his child friends ever said a word against him so they didn't uh, yeah. what happened was um um shortly after he died i think um there was you know psychoanalysis basically uh i don't want to say invent was invented so much as became a vogue mm. and so suddenly people were looking around and trying to psychoanalyze um you know famous personages and here's one that's in the news is recently passed away and all. And so you get this kind of slapdash analysis from folks who are going, well, he took some pictures of kids and he wrote about kids and he liked kids. I'm like, okay, so does Santa. <laughs> we need a little more than that. Yeah, yeah. And in fairness, they came up with a little more than that, but it it's all kind of... Um, it breaks down when you look at it too closely. Yeah, I, I think there's limited value in yeah psychoanalyzing somebody years, years and years and years after their death. But yeah, it is it is unfortunate that that is how he is remembered. I think by some certainly by some um, yeah. yeah not by all but by some yeah but then the people who thought differently spent a lot of time and effort you know digging up the evidence and like putting it in nice clear words trying to convince the folks who didn't you know who just went with the vogue and were like oh he does like kids that's bad which is really um it says something bad about a culture if you know a guy who likes kids and is willing to you know play word games and send you know write out little word games and mail them to fans who happen to be younger Mm -hmm. If that's a problem, we have a problem as a culture that's a little bigger. Yeah, it's um, it it's yeah, that was a, a different, that was a different era, I guess. I mean, because the Victorians too, didn't they? They they did have a, I don't want to say a fetish, but they they did have a an affinity <laughs> for childhood. Like they they did idealize it. You know, in in that way, he was really a, a product of his time. Mm. You know, the innocence of childhood. 
charming things about Alice and I think this probably must hold true across every Alice but is just her the way that she does kind of poke at these authority figures you know she's this seven seven year old girl seven and a half year old girl who she's not malicious but (laughs) she is she does see through the nonsense and she will call you out on it and there is something compelling about that Alice figure, I think, mm. even now. Oh, yeah. I mean, adulthood is, in a sense, about stepping into a world where nothing really makes sense anymore sometimes. And you're sitting there trying to be practical, but everything's all upside down and backwards, forwards. And Alice just walked straight through that, told it like it was, and managed to get out safely. Wouldn't we all like that? Yeah. Yeah, and and she does. Oh gosh, yeah, just the 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 pompous, just the pompous characters that she encounters in all of these, in all of these adventures, and the way she just pokes right through them, <laughs> and you know waltzes away, um, becoming becoming the queen. And yeah, I, I think I think she's gonna still be a fondly remembered character and i don't know updated for the the next generation oh absolutely yeah i mean there's still alice materials being brought out every year and new and interesting variations she's very popular in gaming as twisted wonderland rather attests yeah new manga show up all the time and now um we're seeing more in i think in korea uh as well that is an interesting sidebar. I don't want to go like too in depth about that, but yeah, Korea has never struck me as having the same Alice um, interest. Mm, it doesn't, yeah. um, or historically, it hasn't. Yes, yeah. So this has to be coming from yeah via gaming, I guess. You know, I'm honestly not sure. Um... I was talking about it with a professor of Korean literature once, and I was expressing, you know, a bit of surprise that there was so little Alice material there. And she just sort of said, "Yeah, it was the time. wasn't what the, you know that wasn't the trend of the literature. It was more focused on um, realist works and uh, proletarian literature and so forth." And um, 
maybe now uh, these days we've got, you know, especially with Korea's um, incredibly successful entertainment industries. Yeah. Maybe there's a little more space for more fantastical material, I hope. I don't know. At any rate, the Alice adaptations that I've seen from Korea have been of a nice quality and they are getting to be more diverse and getting further away from simply translating the books. Well, that's something to look forward to for sure then. Mm. Yeah. Well, do you have a, a favorite Alice adaptation? <laughs> or I mean, I know this is a loaded question. <laughs> oh, a favorite Alice. I mean, honestly, I'm not great at favorites in the first place. Yeah. All right. Well, is there is there something that um, has a special place in your heart in Alice mm. adaptation? The most special place would probably go to Yuki Kori's works. She's, I've been reading her uh, manga since high school. Not because of Alice, just because the her line work is so beautiful. So is, and a, <laughs> is that how you found Alice originally, is via manga? Or were you um, familiar with the, the book and everything? Oh, I've, I've read the books as a kid, although, like you, I went back and read the annotated uh, Alice as an adult who was writing her dissertation, because oh. I thought I should probably have a better grasp of that before <laughs> writing a dissertation on it yeah um but actually i um one year i went to an anime convention and i had been to some before and anime conventions um have you know a dealer's room with different stalls where people sell things um including the lolita people selling lolita costumes basically so this one year i go there and it seems like the only thing you could buy at the Lolita, the various Lolita stalls were Alice costumes. And they all, there were quite a few of them. And I just kept turning the corner down new aisles and going, oh, there's, there's a blue dress with a little white pinafore and a, you know, Lolita style and all of that. And even some of the non-Lolita stalls had just straightforward, you know, Alice costumes. And I thought there must, you know, it would make sense if there was one big anime that year that happened to be, in, you know, adapting Alice. Because um, that happens on occasion. There there would, would have been like one big anime, so everybody would have merchandise for that anime. But that wasn't the case. They just all had Alice that year for no apparent reason. Um, so, you know, fast forward, I don't know five, seven years, and I'm uh, setting in to write a dissertation about adaptation in Japanese media. And my advisor asked me, you know, what would the body chapters be about? And I said, well, um, I've written an article about uh, this anime called Princess Tutu, which adapts a host of European story ballets. Um, I've been, I happen to have noticed this, this odd thing at an anime convention with these Alice costumes. That could be a chapter. And then maybe I'd write something about um, Journey to the West, which is this Chinese story that was adapted into Dragon Ball Z and a number of other series. Um, and that was our plan. But as I started writing the dissertation, I turned up, you know, Kusama Yayoi has repeatedly identified herself as Alice. Akutagawa Ryunosuke and Mishima Yukio, two of modern Japan's best authors, both translated Alice. There are 5,000 manga about Alice and video games and stickers. And then Lolita turns out to be Alice. And eventually my advisor just looked at me and said, you, you can't do one chapter on this. It has to be the whole thing. That was that. Well, I think your ad advisor had um, 
very good instincts. Yeah. I mean, I've I've got the book out now. And in retrospect, I probably should have done a very quick transition uh, or revision of the dissertation into one book and then written a second book, too. <laughs> well, you know, there, there's, you know, you can always just write a second book. <laughs> we'll see. I, I hope I end up with enough material. And indeed, I'm already working on a um, special issue of a journal uh, that I'm co-editing and contributing a, a little bit to that will hopefully be producing even more about Alice in Japan. Oh, that's very exciting. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a fascinating topic. And just the, the cross-cultural adaptations and then just all the... There's just so much material. I think you could have a whole career just on Alice in Japan. <laughs> <laughs> you could just be the Alice in Japan, like, studies. Uh, we'll see. <laughs> I think at some point, various tenure review committees would like to see other stuff. And, you know, there are some interesting things. <laughs> I mean, if nothing else, I kind of want to write a history of cat manga now. Oh, that would be good. <laughs> that would be interesting. Yeah. But you're absolutely right. Um, one of the things that has always inspired me about the Japanese Alice materials is that the, the artists take it in so many directions mm. that you, in turn, can go in different directions. There are horror Alice works, for example, that let you talk about various social ills. There are, you know, digital Alice works that let you talk about, you know, how do we understand where we are? And, you know, the people that we're talking to when we are online avatars or working with various, you know, people that we never see or are exist in an actual physical space with. There's um, there's Takarazuka adaptations mm. of Alice that are just straight romance. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, you've got basic stuff about adulthood versus childhood and, you know, what does it mean to be Japanese or English or American, all of that fun stuff. And you can get into all these issues through Alice. Yeah. And, you know, the philosophical Alice as well, which has always really appealed to me. And I, I guess that's the, the differences in perception and just the way that you... You know, you can see yourself as a, a person in the world or, you know, or are we all just in the Red King's dream? Mm. <laughs> I don't know. Are we? Uh, yeah. I mean, we could be. <laughs> <laughs> um, and maybe that's the uh, the note to end on, unless uh, you had anything else you wanted mm. to, to cover or did we get a good broad overview? What? did pretty well. I mean, I, I talk about some other things that uh, we didn't talk about, but it's a long book, you know? <laughs> well, you're welcome to come back on anytime to talk more, Alice. <laughs> Thank you. I would love to do that, especially if uh, new Alice materials pop up, or any materials, Japanese materials, whatever, that you'd like to talk about. Yeah, yeah. Well, if you do watch Alice in Borderland, I think you should come back on and we can dig into that. Season three is coming out. Oh, I better catch up then.
Мы мудрые.